Am I on? Okay, good. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Romans chapter 6. And beginning about verse 15 is where we're going to find our text this morning. Um, as we're making our way through the book of Romans, we're discovering a lot of things about who we are, where we've been. Uh, and once again, we're going to discover a little bit more about that today. Uh, before we get into that, I-, I was reading an article about a lady by the name of Kay Martin. She was a secretary to one of the New Zealand's members of parliament, and she got the shock of her life one year. Uh, she and a friend were, were there, sitting there just talking one, one day, and, and as they were talking, at least this is what's recorded in the Auckland um, Sunday Star back in 1994. They were talking, and they heard some squawking going on, and, and they thought that a chicken is loose somewhere, and so they headed outside uh, to go find this chicken. They looked, and, and it wasn't any chicken outside. Their neighbor's chickens were all taken care of, and then they realized that the squawking was coming from inside the house. So they ran back inside, and Mary began to have this understanding of what was actually going on. Just about 30 minutes prior to this, she had put a chicken in a roasting pan in the oven. And as she approached the oven, the squawking was coming from there. So she pulled out the chicken, and it definitely it is squawking like crazy, and, 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 and she just didn't know what to do. So what was taking place, she says, it was as if it was shrieking at me from its grave. It was so bizarre, I, I just froze. And so as she pulled the chicken from the oven, they discovered that steam was building up inside the chicken where the stuffing was, and the steam was making its way out of the throat through the intact vocal cords (laughs) and making a noise. Well, as the bird cooled down, the squawking disappeared. So what does Mary do? She chops off the neck of that thing and throws it in the kitchen sink, you know, and goes on to proceed to cook her chicken. I understand she has not cooked a chicken since. At least that's what, you know, when you think something's dead, it should be dead, right? It shouldn't come back to life and start to startle and scare you. But that's what they thought was happening with this chicken. You see, those of us who are Christians, we should have buried the old man of sin. He's gone. He shouldn't come back alive making squawks and squeals and all kinds of noises. And yet, somehow, that old man rears its ugly head and he starts acting up again, making all kinds of commotions in our life. And and we just do whatever is necessary to shut him up. We've been set free from the bonds of sin that that old man had confining him. And we've been given this freedom because of Jesus Christ. Now, our sin put us into slavery. And that's what we're going to kind of dig into today in Romans chapter 6. We were once a slave, is what Paul is going to tell us. But with our newfound relationship with Jesus Christ, that old man's gone. And there's a new man there. But this new man, we discover, in all of his freedoms, still as a slave. So how are we a slave? That's the first question I have to ask myself. Am I really a slave to the law? 
That's what Paul has been talking about, law and grace and our slavery to it. In chapter 6, verse 14, he reminds us that we as Christians, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. Now in verse 15, he then proceeds to ask a question. And he's already got the answer laid out for us. He said, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. So he quickly burst their, their autonomy bubble with his little wording there, meganoito, which means by no means, or absolutely not, or you've got to be kidding, or, or what you're talking about, Willis. It's no way. It, it, there is nothing out there that's supposed to enable us to keep on doing this. Absolutely not are we to keep on sinning. And his explanation then is going to follow in verses 16 through 23 about why we should no longer be enslaved to our sin. And he tells us what it means to be free from the law. So basically what he's going to tell us is this. It doesn't mean we're free from having to obey all the law codes. He's telling us we're free from the law system for salvation. There's nothing you're going to do in the law that's going to get you saved. We've been set free from that system into the system of grace, which we've talked about. It means that, that even though we are under grace, we still have an obligation to obey the laws of God, which He has commanded us. And that those commandments apply to us even under a new covenant, we still need to live faithful to God's desires for a standard of life. Yes, you have been set free by the grace and the goodness and the mercy of God, but you need to act like it. You need to act like His children. Now, you see, all our lives we have been slaves. And for the matter of fact, it's this. We are created beings. You and I were made by God. And because we were created, we belong to Him. If I create something, it's mine normally. That's what we say, right? I made this, it's mine. I invented this, you know, and, and so we trademark it, we copyright it. We do all kinds of things to show people that these things are ours. Well, we are created by God. We belong to Him. And this is the kind of, of God-created universe that we live in. And as Creator, God has absolute power over everything, His Lordship over all the earth, including us. Now, sometimes we may think we are our own Lord and we are our own master, but that's not what God is telling us. As our master, God has authority over us. In other words, He has the right to tell us what to do and what not to do. When we look into the book of Psalms, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist writes us this. He says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Did you catch that? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Well, yeah, this is his earth and the fullness thereof. But it also says, and those who dwell therein. We are his. We're not autonomous, being our own independent rulers of life. He is. He is the one. Then he'd change over to Psalm 100, and we see there in verse 3, you know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, 
and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We belong to God. Even those who are not Christians, they belong to God by virtue of Him creating them. They are His. We are and always will be creatures, and that will never change. Now, on the basis of that, because we are His created beings, we have a 100% obligation to obey Him and what His laws are, because He owns us. And there's no such thing as autonomy for created beings. We are always, and here's the word Paul's going to use, slaves to something or someone. You never really earn your freedom and are longer slaves. You are always slaves to someone or something. And that's what Paul is going to introduce to us today. Now, we do have a choice about whom or what we're going to be a slave to. And he lays this out for us in our text today here in Romans 6. You've got two things. You're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Well, righteousness is, in fact, under God's commands and domains. Now, he tells us here in verse 16 of Romans 6, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, before we were Christians, we were slaves to sin, but when we became Christians, we switched masters. And and, and when we made our confession of faith, we, in that confession of faith, made a proclamation that Jesus is Lord Lord is, is that word that we use for a master, an owner, the one who controls us. That's what we're saying when, he, when we make him that confession that he is our Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul's going to tell us here in a few chapters, he's going to say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, we're still slaves, Paul's telling us. But now we're slaves to God through Jesus Christ. Actually, I think we've always been slaves to God, but we also took up another owner, which was sin and its passions and its desires from us, and and we made that as a conscious choice. As unsaved people, sinners, We had a spirit of what we thought was autonomy and independence and and choosing to do things our way, a a, a spirit of rebellion against the one who actually owns us, and we went out and outright did things against him, which we thought would be to our benefit. But now we have a conscious change in us, and we've decided that we want to be obedient to God. And he's introduced a way that we can get back into this relationship in a healthy way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Well, before we talk about that, I want us to talk a little bit about pre-Christian slavery. Who or what was our master? And Paul's going to tell us that sin was our master. As a matter of fact, even Jesus tells us that sin was our master. And so he speaks these words in John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he answered them. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Those are Jesus' own words. And now Paul is going to take that very same standard of life there, and he's going to apply this here in Romans chapter 6. So in verse 16, 17, and 18, in verse 20, he tells us this, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And then he says in verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. All right? So we know, first off, that we were a slave to sin. But he's also going to tell us that we have this slavery that binds us to this lawlessness in life. All right? So Romans 16, 9, he says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. All right, so we, we, we can't have it both ways. We are either going to be a slave to sin and lawlessness, or we're going to be a slave to righteousness and obedience, which is going to lead to, to Christ. Now, ultimately, the end result or the payoff of our slavery to sin is not good. All right? We get freedom from righteousness. So what does that mean? Freedom from righteousness. My next slide. He says there in verse 24, when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you weren't going to be righteous. There was no way that you could achieve or attain righteousness on your own because of sin. You've been set free from it. And all you have to live as a result of that is the sinfulness, the lawlessness of life, the exact opposite of that righteousness. So it has no control over you. So you do whatever you want. The second thing we, we, we get as a result of this is fruitlessness, he tells us there in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things which you are now ashamed? What was the benefit what is the benefit of living a sinful life? We know that Scripture, even Jesus himself, tells us that all these things are temporary. And we put all of our hopes and our desires into those things which rust, and they rot, and they fade away, and they wither in time, and they just disappear. There's nothing really that's significant or beneficial for us. There's nothing that's fruitful. However... We also get death, is what he tells us there in Romans 21. For in the end of those things is death. So what does sin give you? Nothing good but death. John writes to us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says that as a result of our relationship as a person of sin, there's this increase in lawlessness, and we see that in our world. So he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning 
also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that explains a lot of what's going on in our culture today, doesn't it? And we want to throw off what they would call the burdens of law so they can do whatever they want, but all that does is increases the lawlessness and the sinfulness and the moral degradation of our society because we're trying to please ourselves. Well, that's who we were, Paul says. You and I were slaves to sin. And then he says, welcome to Christian slavery. That's who you were, but this is who you are today. There's a newness in this slavery. He says, we presented or we offered ourselves to Jesus Christ, surrendering to his lordship, confessing him as our master and ourselves as his slaves. And in our sinful world, most slaves are immorally forced into slavery. Somebody captures them, somebody kidnaps them, somebody forces them into slavery, and they have no choice but to be obedient to the master because if they don't, their life is at peril. All right? And, and they have no choice in it. They just have to do what they're told. But when we switch masters and we surrender ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we entreat ourselves to Him as a slave, that is done not because He forces us to that position, but because He invites us to it and we choose to accept what he offers by our own free will. We became obedient to the teaching, to the faith, to the gospel message, and we live that out in our daily lives. Now the second part of verse 17 literally says there that, that, that uh, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He uses that word become obedient. Now that's, in, in the language structure, that's an aorist past tense. Signifying to us that that is something that happened in our past. It was an event, a moment in time when we became obedient. It was our conversion experience in our, in our initial obedience to the faith when we obeyed the gospel and, and when we confessed Him as our Lord and Savior and were baptized into His name. We marked a time in our past that we became obedient to Him. But we were obedient to the standard of teaching, he says. That's what we obeyed. So what is this standard of teaching? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we're told that the disciples, they gathered together as a church, and they listened and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which they had received from Jesus in order how to live our lives. And so daily they would meet together and they would listen to the apostles' teaching on how we should live. Jude tells us that this standard of teaching, in Jude, chapter, in Jude verse 3, it says that it is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So ultimately what we're talking about here is establishing a whole new world view. We look at things not from our own perspective, but we look at things from God's perspective of life. So that's how we now begin to interpret things in our world. The standard of teaching, the Greek word is tupos, where we get our word type. 
All right, it's a type. It is a pattern or form, and it has two main connotations with it. The first one is this. It's either going to be a pattern, all right, after which something is molded or shaped. So when we think about patterns, we think of different kinds of things. You think about like a jello mold into which you pour the jello, and as it sets up, then it forms itself, and when you take it out, it looks like the form that was there, all right? So it's, it's a mold. It's, a, it's that kind of a pattern. Or we might consider it like a cookie cutter. And as Christmas is getting a little bit closer, at least the stores are telling us that, right? Cookie cutters, people like to roll out the dough and they take that cutter and they, they cut out pieces. So instead of having that blob of cookie dough, now we've got carefully trimmed forms that present to us an image, Right? Or, or maybe it's like some of you uh, people are, are love to, to do, do sewing and they take a dress pattern and you lay the pattern out on top of the material and, and you attach it there and then you cut and you trim around so that now you've got these pieces that you can put together to make the specific item of clothing that you want. All right? Or it could be like a blueprint. And these are essential when you're trying to build a structure that's supposed to resemble what you thought up in your mind, all right? And so the architect will, will draw those out and he will give those to the contractor who will then give those to his, his, his skilled tradesmen and they will follow through and make sure the plumbing goes where it needs to go and the electrical goes where it needs to go and the cement is exactly right and everything then is square and plumb. And so we, we use these as a pattern in which we can then mold and shape things. That's one way. But he tells us that the gospel or the teaching, the standard, can also be an imprint, which is made by, let's say, a metal die cast, all right? And then it pushes and it imprints into something its image, all right? Or a stamp. You know, we, we take and put the ink and we move it and we stamp it on there and we say, oh, there we go. That's exactly what we want. And it gives that image there because of the stamp. A lot of ladies I know in recent years have become these stampers and these, these crafters and they have all kinds of collections in which they make images and make their own cards. And I've had dear friends who've done that. And it's great when I get like a birthday card that they have handmade and they will use the stamps to, to put images and impressions on. And, and that's a uniqueness. But it's also the idea of this imprint of a seal. And a seal is important. We use a seal for official documents, meaning that there's some authenticity behind it. And the seals come in different ways. They're either like the stamp or you, you drop wax on something and then you put that seal on it and it, and it gives the imprint as well. Or it's that you slide in and it pressures things together. So the standard of teaching, this tupas, this type of teaching, forms us into being who God wants us to be. And he imprints upon us and he molds us into who he needs us to be. So what then was involved when we became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching? Well, we acknowledge that God's word, which is the apostles' teaching, the, the, the Christian worldview is the pattern by which we're going to live now. No longer by the sinful lifestyle in which we lived in the past. And so that helps shape our minds and our thoughts and our actions. So we become different than what we were. We laid ourselves down on that pattern. We pledged to trim away anything that does not make us look like Him. 
All right? We, we let him cut away all the ugly cookie dough, and then we're formed into the, the perfect gingerbread cookie, right? You know, so we look the way we're supposed to look. And he has stamped his word upon our hearts and upon our minds. See, we were committed. That's what he tells us there in, in this passage of Scripture. We were committed which means we were handed over, we were uh, delivered, or we were entrusted to what? It's a form of, of a teaching. Interesting, that word committed is also a, a passive word. It's an action that is done to us rather than something that we do. Right? So when we look at that passage of Scripture, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. He hands us over. He presents us. He delivers us into this standard of teaching. All right? It's, it's passive from our point of view that refers to that, that act in which that we surrendered ourselves to him when we turned over and became a new creation. And, and we brought that up in, the, in, in Romans chapter 6 at the very beginning that when you're baptized into Christ, you're a new life, you're a new creation. We have a new master. When we died to sin, we become his. It's passive also because God, our new master, is the one who does all this work in us. It's nothing that we can do. But then, once that has transpired, he then says, Okay, slaves, it's time for you to get busy. And Jesus has given us a commission as to what we're to do. And he tells us that in Matthew 28, that we are to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach people to, the words can be observe or what? Obey. All, right. all that he's commanded. We literally are handed over or committed for a specific pattern or type of standard of teaching. When we became Christians, we accepted the Bible as our rule of guide. And that's what we're going to use to live by. And it supersedes anything else that is written by man's standards of law. Our choice is to obey his standard of teaching because it was also made from the heart and the issue is not just, did you understand what was happening? Did you understand the decision that you made to be his slave and his servant? But did you mean it with all your heart? That's why that passage of Scripture that Jesus has asked one time, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's not just, do you understand what you're doing? But is this really from your heart? Paul says, yes. When we truly made our free will choice that we weren't bullied into making, we made this from our heart, and we yielded ourselves to God to be His servants, His slaves, forever. Now, when you go back into the Old Testament history and you start to look at some of this aspect of being a slave that makes a choice for permanency, we can go into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. God tells his people this. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, 
He shall serve you six years. All right? And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your stock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, he says, I command you this day, if he says to you that I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl, an owl, and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. Slavery in Israel was generally a temporary thing that people would sell themselves into slavery or they would sell a child into slavery or somebody else within their household to pay off a debt. That person then becomes a slave for six years. And they have to obey that man. But on the seventh year, God says, you let them free. Not only do you let them free, but you send them out with a bunch of goodies as well. Because that's what I did to you. For the past few weeks and months, Sean has been teaching on Wednesday night with our teenagers about Moses, and they've gone through that exodus period. And they were slaves in Egypt, and they lived there for 400 years, and their slavery became highly oppressed. They cried out to God. And when God finally said, okay, I'm going to free you from that slavery, what happens is the people of Egypt... And Pharaoh said, take everything that you want. Take the gold, the silver, take the animals and livestock, whatever's left, it's yours. Just go. God is telling the people of Hebrew, because I treated you that way, you're to treat your slaves that way. So in the seventh year, you let them go free and you give to them out of the abundance. All right? Interesting concept. But... If they love you so much because of how you've treated them and they want to stay your slave permanently, then you can do that. But you've got to mark them so people know. And so they would take an owl and pierce their ear to show that they belong to somebody. We belong to Christ. And it's a decision that we've made because He loves us. So where are we today? Well... As Christians, you and I have a new master. It's no longer sin. It's no longer death. But it's the righteousness that comes from Christ. We are now slaves to obedience, as verse 16 says, to righteousness, as we're told there in verse 18 and 19. But more profoundly, we are slaves to God again. You see, he, it's as if we're slaves to Him twice. First off, we're slaves to him because he made us. But secondly, because he bought us. We owe him our lives. And Paul is emphasizing our weakness, our vulnerability to the desires of the flesh. And he wants us to understand we don't need to go back that direction. And we need to admit that at some point in the past, we sold ourselves into slavery to sin. 
we made the choice to leave God and rebel against Him in sin. And it's time for us to wake up and to surrender God and be His slave again. Dick Alexander was the preacher at um, LifeSpring Christian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. A few years back, I'd read a statement he made. He said, every one of us lives in a sea of temptation. We're surrounded by seductive influences. The call to pleasure, comfort, sex, and escape doesn't have to be sought. It tracks you down. Even if you don't want it, it's in your face. It's on billboards, it's in TV ads, it's on the internet homepages. Short of becoming full-fledged hermits, a barrage of temptations is inescapable, often in unexpected ways. And then he says, Christians today seem very casual about sin. It's that, it is, is it that we just, we're just confident that we're too wise and mature to have anything like that happen to us? Or truthfully, he says, is it that we enjoy the pleasure of sin and want to get close enough to feel the warmth of the fire while thinking that we won't get burned? He says, we've almost infinite abilities to overestimate ourselves and to rationalize. But then he says, temptation is powerful and we are all vulnerable. So let's take some time and examine the result or the benefit from serving God as our master. Well, first off, we are free from sin and its consequences. So Romans 6.22, Paul says this. He says, but now that you have been set free and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it, in its end is eternal life. Now, what was the fruit of, of sin? Death, right? But the fruit of this relationship of slavery to God is eternal life and sanctification. Now, I want you to notice that this is also an aorist past tense. It's an accomplished action. It's something that has already taken place. All right? It's nothing that is in the future, but it's something that has been done. We have been transferred from our old master to a new master. That old master no longer can tell us what to do. You see, if someone bought a slave, he takes that slave home. The old master has no control over him anymore because he sold him. He, he's lost him somehow. Now it's the new master. He's the one whom that slave has to obey. And Paul is telling us, we've changed masters. Sin is no longer in control, so you don't have to obey it. The temptation that he lays out there for you, they're not yours anymore. Because you live by somebody else's control, and it is the Spirit of God whom he resides within us. We are filled then, he says, with this holy shame for the things of our former life in Romans 6.21. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Shame, humiliation, disgrace, pain, that's all from the past. And we're embarrassed to let people know that we were that way. 
We don't want it brought up. And we struggle with the fact that we could have done such terrible things. But we have been set free from that. And when we present ourselves to Christ as his slaves, he then makes us righteous. He sanctifies us as if nothing had happened before. And he makes us holy. And so when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. He doesn't see our rebellion. What he sees is the love of his son upon us that covers over the multitude of our sins. He sees the blood that his son sacrificed on the cross for us to wash us white as snow. We are sanctified, verse 22, and our sanctification then is going to end in eternal life because of what he has done for us. A righteous and a holy life is the benefit of being a slave of Christ, but it comes with its obligations. We are committed and commanded to present our bodies as slaves to righteousness. No longer can we do the things that please us in the flesh, but we're to do things that please Him in all of our actions. It's all summed up here in 623 when He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now try to imagine this. It's 1944. Germany is at war with England. All right? Now suppose you had dual citizenship, because in some countries you can have dual citizenship, all right? Maybe you were a, a citizen in England, but you were also a citizen in Germany. Now, let's suppose you are living in Germany in 1944 and you have dual citizenship. Do you think the Germans are going to permit you to maintain your dual citizenship? Or do you think that you are going to be required to announce that Germany is your nation? All right? Now, let's trade that up a little bit. Suppose with that dual citizenship, you are living in England. And the blitzkrieg is happening. Do you think your neighbors are going to love the fact that you have dual citizenship? Or do you think that they're going to say, you've got to choose one or the other? Right? You can't have it both ways. And what we're doing here in this passage of Scripture, Paul is telling us you can't have it both ways. You can't be a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness. You've got to choose which way you're going to be. And he says it's obvious who your master is by who you obey. If you want to continue to live in sin, then I know who your master is. But at the beginning of the chapter, he said, you died to sin. How can you live in it any longer? But if you want to choose Christ as your master, then you've got to put away the old man, whatever it takes. Don't let him be squawking like crazy. Get rid of him. Because he no longer has control over your life. He's dead. You see, God loves us so much that He sent His one and only Son. 
to die upon a cross to set you free from that old man of sin and to give you an opportunity for eternal life. Righteousness. Holiness. Who are you going to choose? For me, I choose Christ. And I chose Him a long time ago. And I let that old man die, even though he was young at the time. And sometimes he tries to resurrect. And I like to play with him. But God says you can't do that. You've got you to put him away. You've either got to live for Christ or you've got to live for yourself. One is going to get you death and the other is going to get you life. I pray you choose Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus, for what He has done for us, providing a way for us to be free from our slavery to sin. And we understand that means that we've got to make Him Lord and Master of our life, and so we've got to be obedient to His commands. But Father, they're not supposed to be burdensome. At least that's what He's told us. I don't know why we fight it, but we do. Father, help us that when we choose to receive this wonderful gift of grace that we'll no longer battle it with sin. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.